James chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 12. James 4, 1 through 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, before we consider this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that there is a lot that's going on here. We're thankful of that reminder this morning because we recognize that uh, there have been times when there wasn't as much happening. There were times not too long ago when there were really no babies in the nursery. There were no children in the children's program. There was no youth group. There was one university student. And Lord, you have continued in your grace to bless and to give us a future, to allow us to serve and worship you today, but also with the excitement that can see great things yet to be done. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought, in some ways, uh, revival to this work. Uh, We recognize that churches uh, come into existence and churches close, and yet you are not done yet with us here, and we thank you for that. But help us to grow. Help us to grow in strength. Help us to grow in sanctification. Help us to grow in community. Help us to grow in holiness and purity. Help us to grow in conformity to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that there's life here yet. I pray that, Lord, we we pray boldly that the best days of this church are in the future and not the past. 
We pray that the younger generation here will be raised up to surpass the previous generations in every way. May they know you better, be more like you, uh, understand the Word more than we can imagine, and practice it better than we can imagine too. Father, may this be a place where your light and glory are clearly revealed. May we be a place where ministry is engaged in, and may we be a place where the community is really reached, and the world. Help us to do a good job supporting our missionaries. We, we confess that, frankly, we don't really know how to do that. Uh, when people go to the other side of the world, we can, we can transfer them funds, and we can, we can pray for them when we remember, but help us to learn how to actually be good at supporting and coming alongside of other people, whether they're missionaries, the other side of the world, or our uh, church plant that we've partnered with in St. Leonard, Quebec, or uh, local ministries like Beginnings. Father, give us wisdom, and by your Spirit, help us to be just good at helping others who are doing good. Open your word to our hearts, uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, tomorrow, as I'm sure you know, uh, it's Remembrance Day, the 101st anniversary of the ending of the First World War, the armistice. And so tomorrow, uh, as you have opportunity you know, to observe the day at 11 o'clock, you know, as you have opportunity, a uh, moment of silence, we, we do want to remember uh, our veterans, and we want to remember as, as time goes on, the memory actually gets increasingly important because the, the visual reminder becomes more and more obviously absent. Because I remember when I was a child, uh, not, not too long ago, relatively speaking, um, going down to the Cenotaph, and uh, in the parades, there were, this is, you know, mid-1980s, there was a long, long, long column of World War II veterans. And leading the way, a reasonable, sizable contingent of First World War veterans, too. And over the years, that front column gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's just a few people in, in wheelchairs or with walkers, or, or sometimes it's the extraordinary person. You think of like a, a George Fisher. <laughs> Still, I think one of, my favorite, one of my favorite memories, this has nothing to do with, with the war. Uh, I don't have any memories of the war, actually. But one of, my favorite, or, or one of my favorite memories was speaking at NBC, the first seniors retreat I, I spoke at at NBC. It's the best time of my life. Uh, it was so much fun. And, and there's George in his, in his 90s and Jack Hazard. Jack Hazard in his 90s as well. I think Jack was just slightly older than, or I, I, I'm not going to speculate who was older. They were right around the same age. And, and there's Jack trying to move from the dining hall to the chapel with his walker, and he got tired. And so he sits down on his walker, and George comes along and starts pushing him <laughs> up towards the chapel. And, and I come down the path, and I go, you know, you know George, maybe I'll just do that. And he goes, no, you won't. Us old boys got to stick together. You know, it just keeps... And you think, well, it's no wonder we won the war. I mean, like, it, was, it was that kind of attitude. Honestly, those cussed, stubborn generation of all time, but they, they got things done in a way that my generation and the younger generation would not even be able to... I mean, 
that we people would be called into battle right now and they'd be tweeting about it. I mean, you never win a war that way. You'd be taking, taking, taking selfies by the Rhine or something. Uh, so, you, you know, you, the, the, you, the visual starts to disappear. I mean, that, there aren't any World War I vets now. None. Number of World War II vets is very small, decreasing all the time, every, year by year. So we need to remember. We, we need to use our minds uh, one of the things I, I like to do around Remembrance Day, coming up to Remembrance Day, is I try to do some cluster reading uh, about war. And so coming up to this, Remembrance Day, I read a book on the philosophers that Hitler drew his, some of his philosophy from, uh, Albert Speer's memoirs, Inside the Third Reich, the biographer on Oppenheimer I want to read, and, uh, and light, more, more lightly, you know, The Great Escape, you know, the movie with Steve McQueen. It's actually a book, you know, so I want to read that book uh, as well. Part of the question, though, in remembrance is this. As you remember what happened, at some level you want to ask the question, why? Why? Why all this chaos? Why all of this turmoil? And you might want to work through just war theory and the ethics of warfare and all of the rest. That is, is it ever right to engage in warfare? And you may come down and, and believe that, yes, it is, providing certain criteria are met. But war itself can never be just. That is, wherever there is a war, you can't have both parties justified. Whenever there is a war, someone is in the wrong, at a minimum. There ought not to be war. There will not be war in heaven, for example. And so you try to work this out. Why? And you get all the historical, you know, events that take place. Uh, you know, you have treaties. You know, you have a actually the way that the, the assassination of sort of the Archduke worked out too is almost incredibly coincidental. Uh, but you look at sort of vagaries of time and circumstance and everyone lining up with allies for the First World War, and, and you can kind of see a bit of a logic of how everything gets pulled together. But if you actually stop and ask the meta-ethical, or the metaphysical question, metalogical question rather, of why, why, why would you do this? For some wars, there's no answer at all. For others, you understand why evil might be Needing, why we might need to oppose evil, but you can't understand where the evil comes from in the first place. Except that if you peel away all of the societal factors, all of the economic factors, all of the political factors, it all eventually devolves to individuals and their hearts. Because it's individuals and their hearts which create social, economic, political structures. The sociological environment is, yes, it takes on a life of itself. So so society does squeeze people into certain molds. It sets certain parameters. Uh, Yes, that's that's all very true. So so you're dealing with sort of that, that ancient debate about nature and nurture, and most people today recognize very well that it's, it's, it's both, you know, it's genetics, it's upbringing, it's environment. Yes, all those things are true. There's, there's, there's all kinds of factors that go into this. But at the end of the day, society is really the product of human heart and creativity in certain environmental, geographical, topographical domains. So, 
Where you have a society that is violent, it is because the people are violent. Where you have a society that's greedy, it's because the people are greedy. That is, you, you can't just blame environment. You can't just blame society. Oh, society made me like this. No, it didn't. Human hearts in pressure on you and your heart in response is what's responsible for these things. But society, you, you can't reify it. It's an abstraction. Societies don't do things. People do things. Do so you want to understand what causes fights and quarrels among you, James asks? He's going to peel it all away, and it's going to be, at the end of the day, what causes fights and quarrels among you is you. It's your heart. These things are not imposed externally. These things come out of the people that we are. Now, the you here may be individuals specifically, or it may be the church corporately. That is, why is the church fighting? I mean, so you look through James, and you can't help but notice that up until now, he's already made it very clear. Yes, there's trials and all sorts of things that are taking place. But there's discrimination and favoritism. The rich are suing the poor. I mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on here. And so the church itself is fractured. So he's looking at this saying, why are, why are all these schisms? Why, is all of these, why are there all these fractures taking place? And like, you know, the, the comic strip uh, Pogo, you know, sort of the, the famous line, you know, we have met the enemy and he is us. You know, like, we are the actual enemy. We actually are the problem. What causes fights and quarrels among you? It would be really convenient to blame other people, but it's not them. It's us. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the external problems come from internal problems. You desire but do not have, so you kill. Now, there's, one, there's, there's actually one really good scholar who believes that this is to be taken literally. Uh, he, he believes that you're dealing with a sort of a faction of zealots, uh, this is James's very early letter. So you're dealing with sort of Jerusalem church context. We have some zealots, and, and the zealots were people uh, who believed that, you could br- that God would have to bring in his kingdom if you sort of created an environment of war. It, because then, if you create an environment of war, the Romans are just going to come in and destroy, sort of, uh, sort of annihilate the population. And so they kept trying to, to start these revolts because then Rome would come in, and then God would have to come and bail out his people. That was sort of the idea. Uh, they're going to force God's hand to bring in the kingdom. And so one scholar thinks these are zealots. They are literally killing people. Now, most, I think rightly, although they can't completely set that aside, uh, most, uh, in my judgment, rightly, take this sort of more metaphorically. You know, you're, you're fighting and, and killing and assassinating people uh, because you're not getting what you want. You covet, you desire something, you can't get it, so you quarrel and fight. Now, this sounds an awful lot like chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 that we looked at last week. Because remember, there is a wisdom that doesn't come from God. There is a wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. There is a way to get things done in this world. It's not God's way. There are ways to be very successful that are not godly ways. There are ways that are worldly wise but are not representative of fearing the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And so there's all kinds of people who are very successful, all kinds of people who get to the top of various domains and spheres, but they are not wise according to God. They're wise according to the standards of the world. Um, I don't know anything about business, like, like literally 
nothing. Um, but I was reading a book yesterday on uh, Ron Joyce, who's sort of the, uh, who's the CEO and manager of Tim Hortons. And I don't, you know, I don't have any sort of special place in my heart for Tim Hortons, but it's, it's worth reading about. And so you're trying, to, you're trying to read about how he built this company. Um, and it's, it's all very interesting. At one point, he plots a hostile takeover of Wendy's. And I'm like... You're really gonna have a you're gonna be hostile towards Dave Thomas. Like, what is wrong with you? I mean, he's a nice old man, and so he's plotting this hostile takeover and how they're gonna do this. How they're lining up all of these adventure capitalists who are gonna come in, and there's like Ohio laws about hostile takeovers, and when he's based in Ohio, and I'm like, what are we talking about? Like, this, this is supposed to be at a double double. I have no idea what's going on. This is so complex. You know, it, it's the idea though is that there are ways of getting things done. And, and I suppose hostile takeovers are good in some ways, depending on business. Maybe it's a misnomer. I have no idea. I just kind of imagine people bursting into a boardroom with like a balaclava and a gun. You know, like, like, like Dave Thomas, give me your company. You're like, okay, here it is. You know, like, I have no idea how those things work. You know, but there are ways to get things done in the world. In politics, in business, you, you get things done, right? Well, that can happen in the church. Well, we, we want this to be done in the church. No, no, we think it would be better to do this in the church. And I have to admit, one of the things I was very pleased with, and this, is not a, this is, has literally nothing to do with the outcome, but I was very pleased with how the church, in some ways, not perfect, none of us are, but how the decisions went that involved whether we stay and renovate giving money overseas to missions and all the rest. Because there were people who didn't agree with the decision every step of the way. But there was, I thought, a general-ish unity in the sense of we will stick together. That's more important than getting exactly what we think is best done. And to me, that was more important than whatever the decision was going to be. Uh, In fact, it's that type of working together. Now, frankly, I think we could have listened better to other voices and all of the rest. That's always the case, okay? But to sort of say, what we will do is we will learn to move forward as a body, even if that means that exactly what I think is best isn't what's done. Okay, part of the thing is, frankly, I'm not sure about you, um, but one of the reasons I'm actually generally okay if things aren't done the way I think they should be done is, is I'm often dead wrong. And so later you find out, oh, I thought that would have been best, but that would have been a disaster. Like, this is one of the reasons I don't understand people who want lots of power. Uh, who wants that kind of responsibility? Like, we're just so often wrong, you know, in, in what we think. So, but in churches, it, it is the kind of thing, though, that so often decisions like that can split churches and have. I mean, you think back in the, you know, the, the 80s, 90s, people in evangelical churches were literally talking about the worship wars involving church music. Transition from sort of piano, organ, song leader, hymns, to other instrumentation, you know, contemporary songs and all the rest. Worship wars. 
as if the very fact, that, I mean, the, the very fact that you are using that nomenclature means everyone has already lost. You can't possibly win if that's what's going on. Really? A worship war? Even if they end up singing the music you want, you didn't win. You can't possibly win that. Right? How, how, how do you war, go to war about worship, for goodness sakes, in the church? Now, part of this, in my judgment, most of this, actually really was about personal desires clashing. Because one of the things I kept waiting for, and never, I've never heard anyone in all of my life indicate this. What I wanted to hear was someone say, you know what? I just hate him so much. I hate the style of music. You know, I, I hate the old language. I just hate hymns. But my goodness, I'm just convinced that God loves them, so we should sing them. What you found out universally when you pressed it is that exactly the songs that people thought God liked just coincidentally were the ones they liked too. Every time. And, and so no one said, well, I hate contemporary songs. I just hate them, but I'm pretty sure the Lord's pleased with them, so we'll sing them despite my preference. It just always happened. There was this beautiful and magical one-to-one correspondence between what I prefer and what God prefers. And the church is split because of it. And that's, that's shameful. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So instead of asking God, as the wisdom in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 would indicate, instead of going to God, you, you engage in politicking and strong-arming in the church. You, you try to get your own way no matter what it costs, rather than looking, waiting on the Lord. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, I will talk more about prayer later when we get to uh, James chapter 5 the last part of James chapter 5. So I'm not going to say much here. This is one reason why you don't get what you ask. This is contextually specific. And so this is not saying every time you pray, if you don't get what you want, it's because you're asking selfishly. It's not saying that at all, okay? So there's, but this one context is there may be times when you are praying selfishly and God looks at it and says, well, I'm not going to answer that because actually that's not in the best interest of my people. That's just going to split the church. You actually, all you care about is getting your own way. And I'm not your genie. And by the way, even though I'm omnipotent, I can't answer your prayer, which is to say yes to this and their prayer to say no to this. And you're both pleading with me, telling me that I need to say yes and no. And sometimes when we pray about decisions too, that, that's how we sort of force you. Think about if, if all the different people in the church are just praying for God to do what they think is best, well, at some level you can't do that because people want incommensurable things. They want the opposite of each other. So there are times, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you don't get because you don't ask. And then when you ask, you're asking out of selfishness rather than looking for the good of other people and the glory of God. And so God doesn't give you that because you'll just spend it on yourself. You'll just spend it on your own pleasures. And he says this, this shockingly, you adulteresses, it's actually a feminine form in the Greek. The feminine form connects it with sort of the idea of the wife of the Lord who becomes a whore which is the language that's used, very strong language. In fact, all of our English translations, uh, all of them, when they translate certain sections in the prophets, are more um, Victorian than Hebrew. Uh, we're, we're a little bit more polite than the prophets in all of our translations. 
Uh, they, they use sometimes horrifically crass language. The kind of thing you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to discuss in polite company, which is why it's okay to discuss it in church. Uh, you know, it's just sort of like, you, you, don't, you don't really want to discuss this sort of stuff. And, and the reason, but it's supposed to be vile. You go, that's, that's vile. Yes, exactly. The language is vile intentionally because what you're doing is vile. The, the medium is the message. You don't get that when you soften the language. It's supposed to be crass. It's supposed to be crude. It's supposed to actually turn your stomach a little bit. Because God's people are forsaking him for idols. God's people have rejected him. God's people have turned away from him. God has been faithful to them, and they have broken covenant with him. It's a terrible thing. So the prophets are always chastising Israel for this. James picks up on that language. Don't you know, you should know from the prophets, friendship with the world system that is wanting to, be, wanting to cozy up with all the priorities and ways of the world, living for here and now and trying to accomplish things the way you want to accomplish them through ungodly wisdom, that is spiritual unfaithfulness to God. It's actually enmity towards God. It's a rejection of Him. It's a repudiation of Him. You choose to be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. That's what he says. That's strong. You line yourself up with the way people prioritize and value and live today, and you are aligning yourself up to go to war against God. You are at enmity towards him, and you are his enemy. That's what you are. And he is addressing people in the church. Don't forget that. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Now, verse 5 is one of the rare verses where there are no textual variants in the manuscripts. This is what the verse is, chapter, five, or chapter 4, verse 5. But the grammar is ambiguous, and there are two different ways of translating it, and until the Lord returns, we won't know which one is best. Just, that's just a reality being this far removed from the context. So, you can translate it as God's jealousy for his people. That is, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, or something along those lines. So, God is jealously yearning for our spirit. Or, it might be something along the lines of, the human spirit tends to be envious, which creates all of these problems. We just need to be aware of that. The spirit he caused to live in us envies intently the older NIV translation used to say. The spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. So it's either God jealously longing for our spirit because he created us, or it's the spirit God created in us now that it's corrupt is always envious and covetous and longing for other things. So it's sort of a, the first instance, it's a reminder of, hey, why are you lining yourself up against God? He loves you and longs for you. The reason that he sent the prophets was to call Israel back. Because he longs jealously for that spirit. Or it's, hey, you need to be careful. Because part of who you are right now in sin is an envious, covetous wretch in some ways. You need to be aware of that. Now, the context probably with the allusion to the prophets, in my judgment, this doesn't really matter, and I, I can be dead wrong about this, I think the context does likely give an edge to that first sort of idea 
that it's God who is longing for our spirit. And so the newer NIV, I think, probably gets this a little bit, gets this better than the old NIV, actually, that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. I think that that lines up well with the context, okay? Now, both actually line up with the context, depending on how wide the context is, which is why, again, people aren't quite sure how to bring this across. Regardless, the solution is this, verse 6, but he gives us more grace. (laughs) And that's really nice. That's really helpful to know at the end of the day, in, in, this, in this church, and, and here's just one of the things. I mean, some people, are, some people are just sunny-eyed, beautiful, lovely optimists who just, just, the world is always a delight. And other people, not quite like that, a little more pessimistic. Right, uh, a little, little more negative. It's glass half full, glass half empty. Who cares? It's probably poison anyway. You know, just sort of like just sort of different, just different takes on life. You know, uh, just different ways of looking at it. Um, and and I remember talking to a pastor years and years and years ago uh, when I was in when I was in Madoc and you know, church was growing and he was at a church much, much larger. And I said, well, because he had been at a little church too at one point, and I said, well, how did, what, what's one of the big differences, like in terms of, of ministry? And he said, well, Steve, the way I figured it, the way I, the way I figured it is this. The more people, the more sin. <laughs> you know? <laughs> no. Well, Thanks for that encouragement, you know. The more people, the more sin. And you know what? He's right. It's easier in some ways to hold things together where you can just get a small group of relatively like-minded people, and then people who don't fit quite in that mold, they just, they just go somewhere else. Or, or you just bump them out, right? Uh, the, the, the lifeboat's full, thank you. Uh, and, and so you just kind of just, because you get people who are sort of politically aligned and roughly socioeconomically aligned, and, and they, they, you know, they cheer for the same kind of sports teams. And it's, it's all, we, of course you get along. It's not hard. People who have the same preferences for music, it's not hard. You start getting more people. You start getting diversity in opinions and backgrounds, and, and all of a sudden, not everyone realizes that everything you think is right is right. And it kind of starts causing some trouble, some problems. The more growth, the more different perspectives people will have. Now, if people are all about their own envious, covetous desires and willing to fight and quarrel, the bigger the church gets, the more likely you are just to have quarreling and fighting. That's just reality. Unless God gives grace. The truth is, a growing church is a nightmare from hell unless God gives grace. It is the worst thing you could ever possibly have unless God is a God whose grace truly is greater than our sin, whose grace can actually cause people who are naturally covetous and envious and always jockeying for position, always wanting to get their way and their agenda, always wanting to be on top. Unless God is actually able by grace to overcome that, start not only forgive people, but start changing people, 
Man, you, you, don't want, you don't want growth. You don't want more people. You want fewer, you want the smallest group possible. Unless God's a God of grace, and He is. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, though. Warning there, a very serious one. God can oppose you. Now, if this is the case, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. In other words, instead of just naturally following the inclinations of your heart, draw close to God. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And God jealously longs for your spirit probably. I mean, he's looking for a relationship with you. He's looking to give you grace. He wants to give you grace. You don't need to be his enemy. You don't need to have enmity towards him. He doesn't need to oppose you. Get rid of your pride. Humble yourself before the Lord, draw close to him. The devil doesn't have external power. The devil can't make you do anything. I mean, Flip Wilson was wrong. The devil can't make you do it. You can resist him. And this very strong language of repentance, then wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's just all very, very strong language for repentance. Instead of sort of running around like a, like a chattering fool, get serious with God. That's sort of the idea. Be, take, be serious about this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Take that seriously. Fear the Lord. So, so if you're just sort of running around, you know, thoughtlessly laughing, stop laughing and start crying. That's, that's what he's saying. In other words, the, the envisioning here is just sort of living like a life abandoned to sin and sinful pleasure and then seeing who God is and doing a total change. It's not saying you actually have to go home this afternoon and feel sad. It's saying you need to make sure you're not taking delight in, in sort of the way of the world. Make sure that you're serious about repenting. Make sure that you're serious about getting right with God. Make sure you're serious. And if that means grieving, mourning, and wailing, that means turning laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. If your joy and laughter and all of those things are inappropriate because they're all rooted in sinful pleasures for the world, yeah, it's time to get rid of it. It's time to come to the Lord. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. This, again, runs on the lines of that wisdom in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Remember, James says uh, in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. That's how he's starting. Wisdom, deeds done in wisdom are done in humility. So God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In other words, this whole section is, is enjoining wisdom and humility. Because it is impossible to be wise and not to be humble. In God's sight, someone who is truly wise, who fears Him, will always be humble. Always. You cannot fear God and be arrogant. Or else you haven't, understand who, you haven't understood who you are or who God is. Humble yourself under God. And here's the amazing thing. God can lift you up higher than you could ever possibly imagine, and He can lift you up far, far higher than you could ever lift yourself up through your politicking and trying to get your way in the church and all of the rest. So wait for the Lord. Now, while you're doing that, in terms of fighting and quarreling, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. So it's kind of going back to verse 1 here a little bit. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. I'll just say it now so that Rick doesn't need to come in sackcloth and ashes to the office again. 
This is not to be applied to the Christmas banquet, okay? When you're a, if you're a judge at the Christmas banquet, say whatever you want and uh, make it funny and hurtful. Nothing's better than tears at the Christmas banquet. So let's, let's go for that this year. If you're just slandering other people, if you're judging them, uh, then actually what you're doing is you're judging the law. Now, how is that the case? Well, what you're doing is the law tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. The, the Proverbs warns again and again and again about, you know, slander and gossip and all the rest. But if you decide that you're just going to tear people up and behind their back and slander them and gossip about them and talk badly about them and all of the rest, what you're really doing is you're saying, well, the law of God's, God's wrong. I don't need this law. Now, now, I want God's law to apply when people are talking about me, so I don't want people slandering me, but so-and-so, they deserve it. I, I can chat behind their back all I want. When you slander, you're rejecting the law of God. You're breaking God's law, which means you're judging it. You're deciding which parts of God's law are worth keeping and which ones aren't. But there's only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is the eschatological end times judge is the one who also gave the law. He knows it thoroughly. He doesn't need to look up precedent. He knows exactly what we've done. And he's the one who's able to save and destroy. That's save and destroy. That's talking about, um, obviously, sort of final judgment. There's only one who can do this, and that's God. So leave it with him. Leave it with God. You don't need to slander and judge other people now. Leave it with God. Who are you, James asks, to judge your neighbor? That is a great question. Who do you think you are judging people whom God has accepted? Now, context is critical. This does not mean that you can't call sin, sin. This does not mean that you have to say things like, well, I don't know if, if you know, I, I, someone says that they don't believe in God and that they, they hate Jesus. Well, I don't know if they're a Christian or not. It's not absurd. This is, this is not postmodern relativism. So the context is saying is not saying, don't ever make any judgment whatsoever about anything. It's saying, look, when you're dealing with the church, you're dealing with God's children. You're dealing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Who are you to go around judging them? And be really careful. Because Jesus, as Jesus says, man, the standard you use against other people, he just might use that standard against you. And you know... We're really, really, really good at seeing the speck in someone else's eye and missing the beam in our own. And so let's be really careful about judging other people. Certainly slander. There's never a place to ever slander anyone. Be awfully careful about judging. Because the standard you use, you just might find you're held to that standard yourself. And good luck. Because all of us have blind spots that, and you know what? Here's the here's the quirky definitional thing about blind spots. If you knew you had it, it wouldn't be a blind spot. And so you don't know what your blind spots are, and you can't know what your blind spots are, or they wouldn't be blind spots. They'd be sight spots. Totally different concept. Uh, So you look at this, and you go, you know what? I just want to be really careful here because God's the judge. And I don't know. I'm going to leave it with God. Also, 
do you really want to hold someone up as their judge in terms of the law when your whole hope is that you're not judged by law but by grace? Isn't that your whole hope? The whole hope of the gospel is that I know I can't keep God's law, but Jesus has, and I put my faith in him. Jesus is my law keeper. The only reason that I'm right in the sight of God is because I'm a miserable failure who's covered by Jesus. Jesus is the one who's righteous. Jesus is the one who's flawless. He's the one who kept God's law. If it wasn't for grace, I would be lost, and that's true for every one of us. And so if my whole salvation hinges not on my law keeping but on grace, then shouldn't I then extend grace to someone else? I think we're, we're so good at taking grace for ourselves and then trying to monopolize it, and then we want, we want grace for us and law for others when we assess them. No. No, we love our neighbors. We love our brothers and sisters. So we don't speak ill of them. We trust them to God, and we pray for grace for them and for ourselves because God gives grace. He shows favor to the humble, and He lifts them up. The church can either be a loving community or a battleground. That's the picture here. A loving community or a battleground. Both are possible choices. Choose your own adventure. Humble yourselves before God. Look to Him for grace and let Him lift us up. I'm asking our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.